0: Uh, welcome to another edition of Culture Class Podcast, uh, the podcast where we get to interact with people from different backgrounds, uh, get to learn about other cultures uh, from different parts of the world. My name is Nosa Yari, and if you're watching me on video right now, I'm in my hat mode. That's because we've been at home for, what, four weeks now? Like a month, I think? This is like week four. It depends on what uh, part of the world you're in. But yeah, today I have uh, Dr. Ravina. Uh, Panot on the line all the way from UK, from London. Welcome Ravina.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me on the show.
0: How's it going over there? Uh, How's the, I know London, uh, just like New York, uh, one of the metropolitan areas that that is witnessing a lot of uh, COVID related uh, fatalities and things like that. How's the atmosphere there uh, currently in the UK?
1: Oh, well, it's, it's difficult to say. It's a very different environment to London than I've ever seen it. The streets are empty. Um, people are genuinely quite scared to even leave their house. And the hospitals as well are... Um, actually, some of them are quite empty, surprisingly, and that's because people are scared to come in. Um, but of course, we have a high number of, of COVID patients, um, and we're just waiting for the day that number slowly decreases.
0: Yeah, I can totally relate with that because I had I, I had like an examination on my knee on my right, because I have like an old soccer injury from college. So I had like a knee exam like three weeks before the whole COVID thing happened. And I was scheduled to go back for like an MRI or something. But I was like, ah, you know what? It's just a knee injury. It's not life-threatening. I think I'll just stay away from the hospitals (laughs) right now. So I can imagine in that regard, a lot of people are kind of like keeping away. Um, You graduated from med school like a couple of months ago like less than a year ago and this is your first (laughs) (laughs) I know threw you guys out of med school and into the fire huh
1: life is really uh, challenging it's really testing me right now Uh, I never thought that eight months after finishing and graduating from medical school I'd be jumped into this um, hot this boiling hot water Um, but it's it's been testing for everyone even even the the people that have been in the profession for for many years um, they're being thrown into situations they've never even um, seen themselves or imagined themselves in. So yeah, it's, it's difficult for me, but it's difficult for everyone.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. But, you know, looking on the bright side, you know, you might be able to make your bones uh, a lot sooner than other doctors who graduated, you know, at a time of just peace and tranquility. Because I can imagine there are a bunch of people I knew who graduated, who had an MBA, like during the financial crisis in 2008. And, you know, that in turn, you know, spurred their creativity and whatever to do great things that, you know, they wouldn't necessarily have done if they just you know went into the workforce or anything so just looking at a couple like half full trying to be positive uh, of the situation I know everyone appreciates the work you and your colleagues do uh in the hospitals and everything uh but um just giving you some words of encouragement and thank you for also taking out time to do this I know as a doctor you pretty much have a busy schedule and it's it's kind of like the afternoon there in the UK for so thank thank you for just stealing an hour to talk to me
1: Reaching out, and I, I completely understand what you're saying. I think in this this whole crisis that's going on, barriers have been broken down. The hierarchies that are typically seen in hospitals are, are now becoming almost like an equal playing field, mm-hmm. and we becoming more of a team, and people are, are sticking together as opposed to you know the most junior person has to do all the work it is very much more let's delegate let's let's work work at these problems together um which is a great positive that's being seen and and as you said it's just looking at the bright side of things in this current situation
0: oh so that's a real thing right like I understand that in every organization definitely in the hospital there's obviously the doctor who has been practicing for 20 years and you know the head surgeon and what what have you what have you but it's a it's a real thing because I've dated someone before who always complained that you know who her, her boss so the, the doctor always pushes everything down to her and says, you know, he just comes in and, and asks her, oh, what's the diagnosis and <laughs> all that stuff. So, so that's a real thing in
1: hospitals. Definitely. And, you know, we talk about uh, most people that read, uh, watch the news or read the news, we hear a lot about flattening the curve. But what I've seen is actually we're flattening the hierarchy. Um, you know, the, the, lead, the lead consultants are, are doing um, jobs nurses do and nurses are stepping up their roles. And, um, you know, usually the, the healthcare profession is many other professions are you have to work yourself up the career ladder to get certain privileges um but actually it's quite nice that people are being stepped up so me as a junior I'm doing jobs that I never thought I would do but even the consultants are also kind of stepping down and they're getting their hands dirty so it's it's a nice thing to to kind of be on a on a on an equal playing field as I said earlier.
0: Okay, okay, cool, cool. Uh, let's peel back the layers a little bit. Uh, I want to understand, uh, you know, the, the kind of young lady you are, uh, a little bit about your background. I mean, it is culture class after all. So talk to me a little bit about your parents. Um, Ravina Banot, uh, I would imagine you grew up in the UK based or you've lived in the UK for a long time based on your accent, but your yeah. name kind of like gives me the, the feeling yeah. that you're from somewhere else. So talk to me a, a little bit about your parents. Where are they from?
1: Yes, yeah, you're completely right. So I'm, um, I'm British born and bred, but mm-hmm. my family, everyone, um, my parents, my grandparents, they're all um, immigrants in this country. So we are, I'm a British Indian girl um, and my family have come, they've all come from India originally. We're from the north of India, so Punjab. Um, mm-hmm. and, yeah, and my father's side Moved to Africa to Kenya, and uh, my my dad uh, was born in Kenya, and um, my mother's side stayed in India, and then they they came over. So um, just just kind of when I reflect upon upon their life and where we are today, I can only say that where I am today is because of that of what they've gone through, the turmoil, the hard work, the sacrifice. Um, that they've gone through to make sure that each progressive generation have got um, stronger healthier more wealthy um doing better professionally all, all of our um blessings are because of their hard work um so just talking a little bit about what what they did um my grandparents were lawyer my granddad was a lawyer in India, and he um at the time they they came over the first time they stepped foot on british soil was in nineteen sixty four oh. and they they came over then because um, the, the English, the British, were looking for more people to s- increase the workforce. They needed people to do w- work, like be a bus driver, to work in factories, um, to, to just to just increase the workforce. So my granddad came came over here as a, as a highly professional lawyer, um, but unfortunately, despite all of his um, all of his education, none of that was recognised in this country, and that was all annulled, and he had to work start right at the bottom and the only job he could get at the time was as a bus driver which is wow. as a
0: complete and was a lawyer back in back
1: and I was a lawyer. exactly so complete wow. change um but you know at the time there was no kind of question of you, you just take what you're given we were you know we had to just work hard and survive at that point and um, so so he so hit him and also my grandmother she was a teacher and in just the same way, her teaching qualifications weren't um, accepted in this country, um, so she came over and um, she worked in. Uh, she started her own business. She opened a, a grocery shop, a corner shop, and they, they just grafted and they um, they went through different locations of staying. At the time, it's very hard to buy a house. Um but my mother's parents um my grandparents they they managed to have a bit of money saved up, and they managed to buy a house in England um which was around four hundred pounds at the time. Their first house they bought was four hundred pounds, which wow. probably wow about- <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'm sure it's slightly higher right now, just <laughs> yeah, exactly. a sure.
1: But they were actually very privileged at the time to be able to do that. Um, what a lot of British Asian people did at that time was if they couldn't afford a house, they did something called a house share where um, people would, there'll be two different or three different families that would share one house and they would do a night shift and a, and a day shift. So as one family go out to work during the day, the other family would sleep and they would leave for their night shift and they'd, one would get out of the bed and the next family would come into the bed. Wow, that, the whole
0: family in the
1: They would share a house, yeah, just so that they could get enough money um, for them to then afford their own place. But no one, no one really um, had much money at the time, so they had to do whatever was necessary to survive. Um, and that, that was, I can't even imagine how difficult that was for them.
0: I mean, um, it's a tip, it's a typical immigrant story, right? You you come, mm-hmm. you you arrive at a Western country, uh, and you know you kind of like shed all your qualifications and kind of like start from the bottom. You like want to build a good life for your children and you know you make a lot of sacrifices so there are tons of people here in the U.S. who you know had really good jobs you know back home but are here for the first three four or five years are driving Ubers trying to do anything they can to make things work but the thing is that long term like you said like it eventually works out because you know they end up like buying a house some end up you know going on to amass all this wealth like the owner of um, is it the North Carolina Panthers or something like it Came to this country as an immigrant, I think in the 70s, and like he owns a football team right now. That that's the kind of resilience you see from uh immigrants. But um let me talk a little bit about your dad growing up in East Africa in Kenya. Did he tell you like any kind of uh story about him growing up in that country? Uh I, I want to imagine that you know maybe his family was there doing some sort of business. Uh, but what, what what type of stories uh has he told you from his life as a young man uh, back in Africa?
1: Yeah, so my dad had three sisters. He still has three sisters. Okay. Um, both of his parents are teachers. So they worked very hard in Kenya, and um, they were very esteemed. And from what my grandparents have told me is that they absolutely loved teaching in Africa. There was a sense of a great community in um, where they lived. They lived in a place called Kosumu, which is a place in Kenya. And they felt that there was a great deal of respect being a teacher and my dad he um was very young. he left Kenya when he was ten. however, he shared with me a lot of stories of him playing with his friends um and there being not really too much um he didn't worry his parents didn't worry about him playing in the on the streets or in his garden and they had there was a great big um Indian community there as well um so there was a sense of belonging, which is something they didn't have when they came straight to this country. There were a few families they knew. Mm-hmm. Um, in contrast to Kenya, um, they, didn't have, they didn't know many people. They didn't have a sense of community. And they were, they were scared because, as you would know, there was a great deal of racism. And just playing on the mm-hmm. street something that young kids did. You were scared that you'd get a knife at your throat or mm-hmm. eggs in the house. Um, and so I can imagine for them that culture change is... Absolutely, something you can't imagine and something you have to adapt to very quickly. Um, so Kenny is a great, a, a great, has great memories for, for my father. Um, he still can speak the local language, um, Swahili. Oh, wow. Yeah, he teaches me. Um, he has tried to. I, I can't say I remember much. Um, he, he, Jumbo. He, he always says Jumbo, um, which is a greeting. Um, but no, he has songs and, uh, you know, there was a great, a great community there. So I, I think all in all, the life there was very different to here. Um, But slowly they they built their their wealth in in England and in London, and then they gradually built a base for them to settle there and to have a family. Um, So that's why they never moved back.
0: Got it, got it. And, you know, speaking about, you know, going somewhere where you do not necessarily feel wanted. Uh, I'm sure your parents, especially you know, living through you know the 60s, 70s, and the 80s, must have you know experienced you no know, blatant uh, racism in in the UK. Uh, things might be a little better now. I'm not sure. You know, I don't live there, but I would imagine you know, with uh, you know the mayor and you know the size of the immigrant population now in London, that that's a, a heightened sense of community. But you personally, have you like kind of like experienced anything, whether it is at school, you know, in the tube, I think you call it, or on the bus or something that, you know, even though you were born in London, it was kind of like a quick reminder that, hey, you know, there are some pockets of the population that might not necessarily be happy that, you know, uh, different groups of people from all over the world are uh, currently uh, residing in London.
1: Yeah, no, that's a good question. I'd like to say that things have changed a lot since the 60s and 70s generally speaking. Of course, as you said, there are pockets in the community that are do have very blatant racism. And um, I, I have had been a victim of racism several times um, living and working in, in London. And that's something that is unavoidable when I, I can share those, those stories with you. Um, so where I grew up um, was a fairly diverse area. However, most places um, do have predominant um, white ethnicities, Ethnic people there, and they um, the school that I went to had a lot of uh, British who were British natives, and the British um, the sorry darker skinned and Asian population were a minority. Um, So, in terms of portraying my culture and uh, being an Indian girl and sharing bits about my religion or language was something that was quite subdued. It wasn't something that would be so overt. I wouldn't always talk about it because I didn't think it would be something that was necessarily accepted in a white predominant area. it um, is so not, it wasn't so much that there was such direct racism as I was growing up, but it was something that I didn't feel I could express as much. Um, having said that, and when I look back in retrospect, um, when I, as I cr- gradually got older, so maybe around 16, 17, you obviously then realise, no, this isn't right. You know, you should talk about the culture because this is the only way people learn. You know, people like Indian food. People watch Indian movies. There no, is a I love lot- Indian. Food. <laughs> 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 yeah, so so you know, people know about the culture. So it's just about um, educating people. And I, generally, once you educate, they people are welcoming to it and they want to know more and they want to wear Indian clothes and bindis and have Indian food and, and that sort of thing. So I realised through educating people, that's how you, you break down these barriers. That's how you um, stop a differentiation like, oh, you're brown and you're white because you have things that are in common, but you also have things that um, are interesting to share. Uh, so that, that's something that I tried to do when I was in sixth form and we had like a variety show at school. And I'm a, a bhangra dancer, and bhangra is a type of um, is a type of music, and it's also a type bhangra. bhangra.
0: Okay. Have you heard of
1: it before? <laughs> uh,
0: no, I, I, I'm, I'm intrigued. Like, tell me about it.
1: Yeah, so bhangra is a traditional type of dance that originates in Punjab in North India, which is where I'm from. And this is a type of music as well as a type of dance. Um, and I really enjoy dancing. And I what, what's dan- the
0: What's the Is it like? Uh more like hand gestures uh leg movement group dancing that kind of paint a picture for the for benefit of those listening to this uh uh, on audio
1: so it's generally a massive team that you have so it's a great group dance it's a choreographed dance and it's highly energetic, so it's a really good cardio workout. So anyone who wants a quick hit sesh, okay. you type, type in bungro is a really it's a really great uh, way to, to to exercise. Are there and, any props
0: um, like uh, sticks or um, acrobatics yeah. or anything?
1: <laughs> not, not, <laughs> it's, actually, it's actually suitable for anyone so whatever age um you don't need to kind of be flexible or or um you know be able to do black backflips or anything like that you just you just need to have fun and it's more about um bringing enthusiasm to the dance uh you can use props but absolutely not essential um and yeah I I I taught some of my friends at school and none of them were Indian and none of them were Punjabi. And I and I taught them how to do this dance and they performed it at our variety show at school. Um, and, and they really, I was a bit apprehensive and a bit nervous, like, oh, will they think this is silly? Or will they will they really buy into this idea? Will they think it's too different for them? Um, but actually, surprisingly, everyone really enjoyed it. And as a result, we did it every year at our annual school show. Um I think that was something I really enjoyed and made me feel like actually it's from what my grandparents have taught me and and the culture that they've instilled in me that I've been able to teach others. Um, Nice. I mean,
0: I, I really appreciate that. And, you know, um, it's one of the reasons why I started this podcast, to be honest. Like, I grew up with a dad who was in the military, in the Nigerian uh, military, and we moved all over Nigeria uh, growing up. And, you know, I interacted with all these cultures from Nigeria. And later in my life, you know, I, I went to school and you know went to all these countries. And through just interacting with all these cultures, I just got to find out that, hey, you know, some of this stuff is pretty cool. And, you know, uh, if you're just there isolating yourself in your own bubble, you might not get to experience like the richness and culture from all over the world. So I've been, I've been privy to talk to people from almost 40 countries and the things I've learned alone, just talking to people from all over the world, whether that's people from Asia, people from Australia, people from Africa, different parts of Africa, you know, and things like that. Uh, So I really appreciate the fact that, you know, you took that initiative to like pay it know educate people your friends and your community about some of the aspects of your culture whether that's through dance or through language or anything and your grandfather actually took out the time that oh even though my granddaughter or my daughter is growing up in in London uh, let me teach her some of the customs but how much do you identify with uh, um, the culture back home do you get to go home often to Punjab?
1: So in this day and age, it's very difficult just with work and getting time off. And obviously, India isn't that close. So to have a prolonged amount of time to go and make the the journey worthwhile, um, you know, you have to take a certain amount of time out. So for those reasons, it's not as often as I would like. However, in the last five years, I've been pretty much every year. um, We don't just go to Punjab. We generally go to the capital city. So Delhi, Delhi, Mumbai. um, And... We go either for shopping and um, most of my family actually have have, um, have migrated out of India either to the UK or the US uh, We do have a few bits a few people in our family that are still there um, but people just found better job opportunities and, and better opportunities for their families to progress to grow and to progress, um, elsewhere. So, so, they, so they've also moved out. Um, but you know, with, with social media and, um, Facebook and things like this, it's, it's very easy to stay connected with your loved ones, regardless of where they are in the world. Um, but in, in terms of keeping in touch with my Indian culture, it is something that's really important to me. Um, so go- going back to India is something I really enjoy. However, having said that, we've got such a great Indian community here in, in London and in the UK, and um, you never feel like you're too far away from home. Mm. Um, it's the people around you that makes such a big difference in forming your, in forming your um, childhood and and just and just forming um, the-, the life around you. We still have community events um, at. at- near my home, and um, where we celebrate things like Diwali or Holly or, um, a, a nine day period called Navratri. Um, so, so we have Sorry, also, the
0: last one, uh,
1: it's called Navratri. So it's a nine day, um, uh, religious event where we, um, we have some fasts. We also do some dancing um, there's lots of dancing, lots of festivities. Um, so just things, things that, May be celebrated at home. We brought that with us to this country, and we is, we celebrate it with with our loved ones and with our community here.
0: Got it, got it. And, you know, I actually know about Diwali and Holly. Uh There was a Holly festival, which is pretty cool. It was supposed to happen uh, here, but that was like, I think in March, early March, but it was canceled because of the coronavirus here in Denver, Colorado, in the U.S. But, uh, you know, fingers crossed for next year. Um, going back home, and this is something I, I personally have experienced. I-, I haven't been back home since I came here to the U.S. like two and a mm-hmm. half, three years ago. Um, but... Certainly I, I know about this, like going back home, we in Nigeria call it people from the diaspora, right? So you're coming back and they don't, like these are your people, right? And But for, especially for someone like me who lived in Nigeria for like what, 26 years before I even touched the US. Like I, I wanna believe that I'm fully grounded and it's not like I left when I was five years old or something and you know you go back or you interact with people online and they kind of treat you like hey you know you're just someone from the diaspora you're not full blooded nigerian like i've only been living abroad for 3 years man like, what are you talking about and you know you're i think in india there's this term like desi so when you go back to india uh it, those you know every year for the last 5 years do you kind of like get that stare from your old people that, hey, you have to prove that you're Indian to us. And you have to kind of like fight to maybe speak some of the local slang or, you know, interact with your friends in a way that, oh, they give you the check mark, that, okay, okay, that kind of thing. I mean, it's a, it's a weird situation because you're not fully, um, some people are not fully accepted in a foreign place. And when they go back home, they're still not fully accepted. So where do they sit? That kind of thing. Have you experienced any uh, kind of dynamics uh, like that, uh, going back home?
1: Yeah, no, it's funny you say that. Um, generally, people can spot me from a mile away that I'm, I'm British, born and bred. Um, and even places like Mumbai and Delhi that are very, um, they're becoming more and more Western. They've got high rise buildings. They've got um, new fashion, Western fashion. Um, people all speak very good English. Um, so sometimes people actually think I'm I'm from from one of the big cities as opposed to the villages. The villages, everyone can tell that you're you're not from the village. You're you're from a big city, or you're from you're from London. So generally, when I go, I try and pass it, saying, "No, I'm from I'm from Delhi," or "No, I'm from Mumbai." <laughs> Doesn't <don't, it> work. <laughs> yes, it has actually. It does. It has worked, and people don't question it too much. Um, and but of course, in, in India, there's such. A vast there's such a vast um spectrum of uh, different cultures um, you have you know you do have the villagers you have people in in um, in little pockets of, of communities but then you also have um, people that are very very western and um, very similar to people in england or or america so so there's such a large array of of people in India um, so how, do,
0: how do you try to how do you try to or how have you in the past try to like fit in fit back in with your own people if there's anything like that I don't know <laughs> are there any hacks or things you try to do <laughs> maybe clothing or language or whatever
1: yeah definitely clothing Um clothing they can spot from a mile away and um, even if people wear western clothes um well, Western clothes—that—that that kind of gives it away. But I generally—I generally wear Indian clothes if if I want to blend in, or if I'm going to see family, um, I want to you know feel a part of them, feel part of the community. So, so I'd wear I'd wear Indian clothes. That's definitely number one. Um,
0: uh, got it. And,
1: and also just immerse yourself in the culture. When I go, like. I usually do like going shopping because they have such great. Um, they're great for their Indian clothes there, and um, they have street food. They have. Um, oh,
0: street food! My God, I've always wanted to try street food in Delhi, in Vietnam, and in yeah. Thailand. Those three places, <laughs> but I haven't had the chance to yet.
1: No, I, I mean it, you have to, of course, be careful and. My stomach isn't always used to the food that they prepare there. Um, so I'm generally careful. But the last time I went, it, the food looked so appetizing. I just had to do it. And I'll be like, I'll pay for the consequences after. But I luckily, mean, you
0: are a doctor after all. so You,
1: know. <laughs> <laughs> you hope that that just be your, uh, your lifeline. But unfortunately, you know, you never really know when you go to foreign places. Uh, no, but I, I couldn't resist. And I had to because the food looks so delicious. And I just stood there outside one of the Indian carts and and the man which is making it fresh right in front of me and it's one of those things you think this is why you love the country you can't have this like in this in this form anywhere else yep yeah so that that was great and it's it's really just about immersing yourself into the culture
0: got it got it mm. so here's a question so um and um, you know a couple of people have tried explaining this to me in the past but from your perspective like what is uh punjab um or punjabi so i try to like sometimes I confuse it like is it a culture or is it a religion because you know there are aspects of Punjab you know where uh people you know uh, tie the turban grow out their beards um some Punjabis do not necessarily participate in that uh but, but what is uh, uh um, Punjabi just for the benefits of some of our listeners who might be hearing about it for the first time
1: yes so that's a great question so Punjab is a state of India it's in the northwest um, and it forms a border with Pakistan, and Punjab is a. It's a so it's a state, but it also has great culture. And if you're Punjabi, it means you're from the state of Punjab. And some, as you've already mentioned, some great things that are part of the culture are one the dancing. So Bhangra dancing is a great um, aspect of Punjabi culture. Um, and there's yeah there's songs. There's their own language. So Punjabi is a language. Um, in terms of religion, um, a lot of people that are from Punjab are Sikh, but they're also Hindu, and you have a mix of both. Um, there may also be Christians, um, Muslims, there's uh, usually an array, but the predominant religions are uh, Hindu and Sikh. Um oh, so in the, the
0: Sikhs are the ones who adorn the turban and grow out the birds, all
1: right. Generally, yes, exactly. So the the turbans is a um, major aspect of the secret religion. It's one of the 5Ks. So they keep their hair. So that's why they generally have a turban and they'll keep their beard as well. Um, And obviously that's um, a a choice of opinion. So some people don't keep it, but some people do. And um, that's just a, a personal choice.
0: And it is, uh, I guess this, I'm not sure, but uh, the phenomenon that originated from Punjabi uh, about people not necessarily using their last name because of the caste system. So using a name where you can't necessarily tell uh, what caste that person is from. Am I correct? Or is that from somewhere else uh, in India? kind of so so if someone's name is uh you have really common Punjabi name like two or three names that literally every family use and not necessarily it's not necessarily that 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 from the same lineage but you know historically there was an effort to kind of like reduce the effect of the caste system in the state of Punjab is that am I accurate in that uh yes
1: it's um yeah several reasons so one the caste system and two um the ethos of the religion of uh, both Sikhism and Hinduism is that they sh- that men and women are equal, they are, they are one, it's not that one sex is better than the other. So for that reason, a lot of Sikh names and Hindu names are are, um, are for both genders um, because they, there shouldn't be any disparity between a, a male name and a female name. Um, so that would be mainly for their first name. And in terms of surnames, this is more in the Sikh religion, Women take the surname or middle name as Kaur, K-A-U-R, and Sikh men would take the surname of Singh. And this is to unite people so that it's like one culture, we're one family, we're one religion. And, and also for the reason that you mentioned, it does mean that there's no disparity between, between castes or what role you are in society, because the whole ethos is that we are one. No one is better or less than, than someone else.
0: I love it. I love it. <laughs> so mm-hmm. let's talk a little bit about your professional life. Uh, obviously, uh, you went to Barts, I think Queen Mary University mm-hmm. in London. Uh, you studied medicine uh, medicine and surgery, I would imagine, right? Uh, yeah. what, what, kind, what kind of medicine do you practice? Pediatrics, OBGYN, geriatrics? Or what, what's your line of uh, specialty?
1: Yes. So in the UK, you generally have two years of being a junior doctor. So that's uh, in America, it'll be your residency, and then you choose your um, specialty a bit later. So okay. you get a little more time in the UK. And during the two years, so I'm in my first year of junior doctor training, and you have a rotation of various different specialties. I'm currently working in. Um, well, because of the pandemic, things have slightly changed. Um, but I was um, at my first job as a junior doctor was an A&E doctor, so an emergency doctor. A uh, and E? A and E. So that's uh, so you would say an uh, um, uh, emergency department, an ED okay. doctor. Yeah, okay. sorry, different terminology. Uh, an ED doctor. So the first doctor that you see as soon as you enter the hospital. Um, So you see the trauma, the ambulances. um, Mm, Wow. And you work
0: in London. You must have seen some shit. (laughs) The
1: things I saw in my first month of being a doctor were astounding. You saw You saw really gruesome things. You saw people's hearts who stopped, who you had to then restart by doing CPR. You saw all these nasty um, fractures with limbs falling out. Um, You know, all, all the exciting things. But then, you know, you also, there was such such great job satisfaction with with treating people as soon as they they enter the hospital um after that rotation I moved on to geriatrics so that's all patients over the age of 65 um so that's kind of on the on the the latter end of the spectrum so just dealing with the elderly patients who have a lot of health problems and just helping them get back into the community and having social care um in our in in the UK the social care is usually funded by the government through our taxes so um, well as our national health system is it's all um is a is a public service um so so there, there there's been a lot of um situations where i've really felt um you know this is a moment that's gonna stay with me or you know i've really enjoyed helping this patient get out of hospital and, and go back to her care home or whatever
0: um is, yes is there is there any case of ageism in your line of work like I know back home uh mm. in Nigeria <laughs> Like, uh, especially like the older people, like 60, if, if they visit a doctor and they see a really young doctor that doesn't have any, you know, goatee or beard or anything they're like, are you still in medical school? Can I get like an experienced doctor to look at me or look at my case? Uh, ha- have you uh, had any experience whatsoever uh, about that or people are just, you know, happy to be attended to uh, and things like that?
1: Definitely. I, I've got that. Ever since I started eight months ago, people have confused me for being um, just an assistant. Or and assistants are actually very important, so I'm not demeaning their role. But they haven't even expected me to be a doctor. And um, when they, when after me having seen them, they're like, "Are you? So are you a doctor? Are you sure you're a doctor?" They're like,
0: of- <laughs> well, yeah. "Yeah." When I check my diploma, I think I am. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Um, they're like well very young to be a doctor um and 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 things like that which at first you kind of joke about but when it becomes a regular thing which it has done um especially in the geriatric department because they look at me and they think I'm very young which of course fair enough but um um you also want to be respected in in the profession that you've worked so hard to, to 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 be in and even my seniors have said, you know, if this this does happen, and, and it is usually the case for females, actually. Females, okay. yeah, um, females have been questioned as to whether they're even doctors, um, and they said, well, if that is the case, you can just say to the patient, look, if you don't want me to p- treat you, I won't, and and that's up to the patient. Um, I'm only there to provide a, to provide a service for them, to help them, to get them better, to get them out of hospital. If they don't want me to be there, fine, I won't. Um, but luckily, it hasn't got to that case just yet.
0: Got it. Um, got it. I mean, we, we do we do appreciate what we do, what you do. Um, obviously, the world needs uh, more doctors. And not not only did you go to medical school, but from what I understand from your LinkedIn profile, you also went to business school, like you went to Imperial College, right? Is that correct?
1: Yes. So in the UK, you also have an option to do one year out and to do a, a completely different degree, but you have to do the degree in one year. Okay. Um and so I was I've always been interested in medicine, but I've been interested in things like medical technology. I think that the future is heading that way.
0: Med um, oh, big part.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, that, that's yeah, hopefully in the future. And um and the business side of medicine, which a lot of doctors don't really know much about. It's not something we're trained in during our degree, but it's a major part of how to run a hospital. Mm. Um uh, surgery or community practice. Um and it's just I just wanted a, a breath of fresh air away from the science and the medical side of it, and I absolutely loved my my degree i, I really enjoyed at Imperial and um, you learn you learn um, new skills I learned about different people a whole new sector and how a whole different university worked so all in all, it was a very enlightening process just going through it. it was a very grueling year to complete um i think it was about twelve modules in twelve months um, and it, it was a tough year, but it's great insight and I've, I've really i really enjoyed doing it at the time i think it's given me some great lifelong skills
0: how far is imperial college yeah. from queen mary or oh, you weren't going going to classes in both colleges at the same time so no, 50, no,
1: exactly. so a year
0: off completely oh god i got it got it got it exactly but are well, they both in london
1: how far are they in, yeah so uh of london is, is in east london um so it's a near liverpool street Orgate east area mm. and um, Imperial College is in South Kensington, which is west side. So on the train, not very long on the subway. It's not very long at all, uh, within half an hour, 40 minutes. Um, and no, they just, you have one year at Imperial and then you leave that university and come back and finish off your medical finish. degree.
0: Got it. Got it. I mean, here in the U.S., I mean, you know, the U.S. has a very fantastic healthcare system right <laughs> so yeah I mean hospitals are kind of like run like a corporation now like mm-hmm. I, I have an MBA but this so this is no knock to people who have MBAs but you have all these MBAs come in and you know people who own these healthcare management firms and kind of like run this conglomerate of hospitals and kind of like sideline the doctors. So it's more like, is it profit over patient care? You know, we, MBAs don't take a Hippocratic oath. So I don't know if there's a fine line there, but it's interesting to know that, you know, more and more doctors, because I had a doctor who is in Yale emergency medicine now, uh, a friend who's a doctor, sorry. And he also went to business school. So it's interesting to see more and more doctors at least pursuing that side so they can participate more in the administration of hospitals, they understand the fundamentals about patient care uh, so they might be you know better poised to run the hospitals or you know might be better poised to work together so if i'm talking about profit or money you know you understand and if you're talking about you know medicine i know nothing about it but maybe i can you know try to empathize in that sense um but yeah, pretty interesting. Uh, let, let's talk a little bit about the virus. So obviously, UK. I, I think the numbers now is like uh, for the whole of UK is almost one hundred thirty thousand. Uh, London, obviously, uh, the bulk of that. Uh, Boris Johnson is Boris Johnson still in the hospital? Or has been discharged. I don't know.
1: Yeah, I think he's out now. He's. I think he's returning back to his duties. Um, oh. Good.
0: Yeah, good news. Okay. Yeah, great, great. I mean, but, you know, London has obviously a lot of cases of uh, COVID-19. Uh, you work for the National Health Service, you work in the hospital, uh, so you obviously would have experienced a lot of uh, COVID-related cases. Uh, mm-hmm. Give me a sense of what it's like on the front lines, because sometimes, you know, we're sitting at home, we're on the quarantine, we don't fully appreciate what our healthcare professionals are going through on the front lines especially for someone like you just finished from med school like a couple of a year ago you know something like that uh, how's it like for you what Was that first week like what's the craziness like and uh, what are some of the stories that you can share just to make some of our listeners appreciate uh, uh, the work you guys are doing on front lines
1: yeah okay good question So if we go back right to the beginning when we first heard about this outbreak and we knew that it was hitting UK, we had a few cases, but it was just trickling in, nothing too hectic, nothing we were completely worried about. It felt as though, right, now is the time we need to step into action. We need to take action now, otherwise it's going to be too late. Mm. And I remember walking into hospital, um, it was just just a few days before the UK lockdown and it felt like it was the calm before the storm. Everyone was worried, the staff were worried, the nurses, the doctors. They were scared for themselves, they were scared for their families. No one wanted to to work because they were scared that they weren't so worried about themselves but they were worried about infecting others that they loved and the whole mentality in the hospital was as if we were about to fight a war. It felt very army-like, it felt like we had to get all of our ducks in a row. We had to get our resources ready. Um, we, were sharpening, like our, we were sharpening our spears and getting our ventilators ready. We were free, freeing up the resources of the hospital beds. So we were discharging lots of people um, and we were, we were stopping um, as many patients coming in. If, only if they really needed to come in, then, then of course um, we'd admit them. But if they can be treated at home, then we thought that would be what was best for them. So, we were freeing up hospital beds, we were um, getting our ICU and our intensive care ventilators ready. Uh, we have 12 currently in our hospital, and then we have an extra six. Um, so, we were making sure that they were all, they were all functioning. Um, and then, in terms of the actual workforce, the staff, we were upskilling, the hospital were upskilling the, the staff. So me as a junior doctor, I don't necessarily need to know how a ventilator works, but they were teaching us. We had lunchtime sessions every single day on if a patient comes in with these symptoms, this is what you do. These are the chest x ray findings. This is what the blood test should show. This is what we can expect. These are potential things we can help them with. We all know there isn't a definite treatment for coronavirus, but there are supportive measures like oxygen and um there's some steroids we can give them. Um, so everyone was being educated on everything. So no matter what situation you were being thrown in, whatever end of the hospital, you could handle it. I was taught how to use a ventilator, which I would never need to know about. But it was just in that situation where we're so elevated with patients that if they need to throw me there, I can deal with it. Um, so it felt as though... We were really preparing, like we were preparing the army and, you know, everyone was just becoming specialised in certain areas. Um, but of course, we'd never know if, if this was enough. We were just doing what we could in our capability to, to prepare. So we were never sure when the peak would come. Um, and we were, we were looking at data and analysing when it, it, it would come. And for us, it was meant to come around last weekend Mm. The number did go up. Um, It did go up quite a lot. And as a result, we've had lots of deaths since then, since the beginning. Um, I've lost count of how many death certificates I've I've now signed, which is is very... And you never think that... It's always the same reason. When you write a death certificate, you have to write... The primary cause of death, and then the secondary will be anything that would um, lead to that death, and and they've unfortunately all been um, COVID nineteen. Um, Is so COVID
0: nineteen mostly primary cause of death or secondary?
1: Um, so it depends. So generally, if people have chest um, changes, so we usually see this with a chest X ray or a CT um, X ray, a, a CT scan. Um, and if people have a pneumonia, so this is a, an infection in the lungs, which um, is caused by COVID, then that would be the primary cause. So it would be a pneumonia secondary um, due to COVID. But each, each person's case differs. If someone has a heart attack, they may have a heart attack as well as COVID. So you have to see which one was the one that, that made them die. Um, so it is obviously on a case by case situation.
0: Did you did you experience any dearth in facilities like where you didn't have enough rooms to keep suspected covid cases before they were tested or um you didn't have enough ventilators to treat people or the hospital staff were overwhelmed and you were forced you know to send some people who didn't you know show as much sin- symptoms as others home to self isolate um, that are, you know, even support from the government, like and anything else that can, you know, give us a further sense of um, what, what you guys uh, went through?
1: Yes. So we had a certain admission criteria for patients that had symptoms but needed to be admitted because, of course, lots of people come in with just a cough, but that isn't a reason to admit them. Um, if someone has a bit of a cough, they can probably um, self-isolate at home. It was only to the extent where, they can't actually breathe or they need additional oxygen um, in those situations and we'd, we'd obviously do as much as we can to support the patient. Um, anyone who needed to come in, we made sure they came in. We wouldn't let anyone go home if if, if they needed to be in the hospital. The second issue that we found as as a profession, not just doctors, nurses, but everyone in the hospital is is the lack of protective equipment, which I'm sure everyone's heard about on the news. And the main issue is that the guidelines change actually on a daily basis. So whether you should wear a big a, a big um, FFP three mask in certain situations changes, and no one's really always on top of the guidelines. Um, so some so some people haven't have been doing very risky procedures. Yeah. Um, just a little surgical mask, which is just a little almost. The, the thickness of um, a piece of paper, which obviously isn't going to protect you from a very deadly, infectious virus.
0: What are besides the mask? Well, what are the PPE? Uh... Yeah items do you you wear in the hospital you obviously wear gloves do you wear the visor like here in the u.s a lot of medical professionals wear like the screen uh, Mm. to like kind of like cover their face and also like wear the hazmat suits kind of or the hazmat suits is not used in the hospital only used like in the field is that correct
1: Mm. um so we actually don't have much supply of visors Um, and only people do and a lot of people have actually bought their own because the hospital isn't providing visors for everyone oh wow and um so so you generally wear goggles um, a hairnet because obviously people are going back home and they want to you know you can't take trying to minimize what you take back home with you so a hairnet goggles a big mask around your face you would wear your your scrubs and then you'd wear another surgical apron on top and then you double glove so you wear two sets of gloves and um and that, that's pretty much it um, when yeah. you go
0: when you go back home as a doctor what do you like how do you dispose of the PPE? Do you like remove everything in the hospital, dispose of it, then wear your normal clothes, get in your car or on the train and go back home? Or do you like get home, take it off outside and, you know, go in? Like, how's that how, how's
1: that yeah, process like? That's a good question. So, so what I do is I, bring, I go into work in my own clothes and I pick up a pair of scrubs, get changed in the hospital and only use all hospital equipment. In terms of what I bring into work, I only bring in a very small bag um, with just my lunch in it and my stethoscope and very, very minimal items. Um, and I usually leave that outside my house so I don't bring in anything. And that's my work bag. If possible, I leave it at work. So I don't have to bring anything back home, and then at the end of the day, I dispose of all my hospital scrubs, leave everything in the hospital, and only come home in the clothes that I've come in come in with, and I'll run straight into the shower. Um, so I, I actually walk to work. So so my risk is pretty low in terms of using public transport. Mm. Um, my colleagues who live with families have very young kids, who have a pregnant um, wife, things like that, where where they they are. At, at particular risk, because pregnant we, women have a reduced immune system, and they've had to take measures such as um, they've got an outdoor shower, so they um, come back home after a day of work, leave all their clothes outside in a black bag, and shower actually outside in the garden if they have an outdoor hose pipe or whatever. and London,
0: what's the weather like? <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, not, not very, not very warm. Um, but it's just in terms of safety, a quick cold shower, mm. and then uh, brought back inside with with clean clothes. Um, so everyone's doing what they can to stay safe for themselves and their families.
0: Well, what What can we do to kind of like help uh, uh, people on the front line? Is there something we're missing? Like we know the basics, right? You know, try to stay at home. Uh, if you need to go out, make sure you adhere to social distancing. Uh, some states here in the U.S. and I guess all over the world I am forcing you know wearing a mask or some I live in Colorado so a lot of people wear like their ski masks uh, Mm -hmm. right now outside and you know but but is there anything you think do you think there's any misconception out there in the news something you think we can do better a lot of people are talking about phones right some people wear gloves but they still operate their phones meaning that traces of the virus, if possible, can still be on the phones. And, you know, it stays on glass for up to three, four days, from what I understand. But do you think the news pretty much has it covered uh, based on what we should be doing? Or are there some things you see uh, your patients or people doing that, as a doctor, you think we can do better? Because I heard one time a doctor says, you know, the virus actually sticks on gloves. That washing of hands is actually safer than wearing gloves I was like that doesn't make any sense but when she explained it she was like the virus sticks on uh, the rubber or something for much longer uh, that gloves are only supposed to be worn when you're going to like inspect a patient they're not supposed to be used by normal everyday people going about their business but I don't know is there anything you think we can do better or you know there's a misconception out there that you feel uh, we can do to curb or to flatten the curve uh, a lot quicker.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is a good question. The issue with um, the information that's going out is a lot of the information is based on research that hasn't been done, and it's just on anecdotal evidence and just from really? people. And um, we haven't. We're still in the process of a lot of clinical trials, and you know we haven't actually got any hardcore evidence about this unknown virus. Um, so in terms of the public, I think the public are generally doing a very good job at staying at home. And I think it's a very difficult thing just to, you know, be at home 24 seven and working from home. So the number one thing is, as we know, is to stay at home. And the patients that I've seen that have come in through A&E are those that are, have been out, who've been out. And, and, you know, I even saw a couple patients last week who, who came in with fractured legs and, um, he was the, the the gentleman was on his bike, um, and 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 he was you know of course he had he was probably going shopping, um, but I, people are still out and about unfortunately, and they aren't adhering to government regulations, um, so it is a bit unfortunate for everyone else when people are breaking the rules and and are increasing the risk of the infection being spread. Now, when we come out of this ban and out of this lockdown we are predicting that actually the numbers are going to go up then, because that's the time when everyone's going to start mixing and intermingling, people are going to go traveling. Um, and, and that's the time when the infection will maybe do a double peak, we may have another peak of, of admissions. So I think at that time, that is the time when we need to be ultra careful, we can't all just mass get out of the house and, and do everything we've been missing, do, missing, missing whilst been inside. We have to be careful at that time. and mm. um, you know, that's when we need to need to be wearing masks out, outside. That's when we need the social distancing and the two meters away from other people. Um, and that's the time we need to protect the elderly and the people that have a reduced immune system because they will be the generation that get wiped out. They're the people that, that, that won't necessarily survive. Um, so so yeah i would say it's just about being careful and and about being hygienic and and washing your hands as often as possible um yeah so that's what got i'd it. say
0: got <laughs> it um let, let's peel peel away from some of the you know uh hard stuff and talk about some travel you know um uh from what i understand you're you're a well traveled young lady um yeah Give me a sense of your travel experience. Where, where were some of the places you went to, obviously, before the pandemic, uh, mm. where you had, you know, some of the memorable experiences? Where would you like to go to that you haven't been to yet?
1: Oh, wow. Um, so, actually, this time a year ago, um, I was on a plane to, the, to South America, to your, mm. your side of the world. Good times. And I- yeah, yeah, and it's really <laughs> real to think it was just a year ago. Um, we went to, I went with a group of my friends after we finished medical school. We went to Peru, uh, Bolivia. Peru. nice. Peru, yeah, yeah, did some climbing, um, climbed the, uh, did the Inca 12, um, and we, we did loads of traveling. Um, I also went to Cuba, so I was actually away for a couple of months um, on, on that side of the world. Um and it was the right. best. Is, that,
0: is going to Cuba is that an easy thing to do f- from the UK because pretty it's not a straightforward process from here in the US for obvious reasons.
1: Um so from coming from South America, it was much easier. Oh got it. I came from Peru, so it was actually a very short flight. You need a visa, of course. Um it is a bit difficult in terms of the money exchange because they don't always exchange pounds. So I needed a, a currency card. Um but it was, a, it was a great country to go to and, and something that I, I really enjoyed. Um, and then after that, I I did a bit more traveling. I went back to India in November. Um, I've been to Sri Lanka since then. Um, I went there just actually two weeks before coronavirus hit the UK. So I was really lucky to fit that holiday in. Um, and obviously now we no one's moving, no one's leaving the country for uh, an unknown amount of time.
0: I mean, we're traveling via Zoom, you know, there's eight-hour time difference on this interview, but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> are, are there places you want to go to uh, in the future?
1: Yes. Um, I actually want to do a lot more of Europe. Um, so Europe's obviously very close to us in the UK. Um, but having said that, you, t- you don't always take advantage of how close these countries are to you. So um, I'd like to do... Um, like to do Portugal, Italy, obviously it's not going to be any time soon because obviously all of this has to uh, blow over. Um, and also the Scandinavian countries, Norway, Sweden.
0: Got it, got it. It's, it's funny, it's weird to hear U.S. and the, uh, I'm sorry, U.K. and Europe in, uh, as two distinct Geography is, you know, it makes me think about Brexit, but that's a story for another podcast. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, we really appreciate um, everything you do on the front lines. Um, not everyone has the opportunity to do that. Thank you for keeping us safe. Uh, uh, people like us just stay home all day, work from home, add weight, and you know sometimes fail to realize what is what people are putting their life on the line to make things better for the whole society. So, on behalf of everyone, I want to say thank you. Uh, but before we go, I also want to give you the opportunity to talk about uh, a few stuff. From what I understand, you have your own podcast, also called, uh, called Med Talks. You talk, you talked about med tech, uh, something you want to do in the future. So at the end of every episode, I always give my guests the opportunity to either you know talk to their future self. If there's something you want to document right now about where you want to be in ten years, so we can come back and refer to the oh she actually said this twelve years ago. Or you know you just want to talk about your podcast or your book. Or you know you want to shout out someone, or you know drop your social media handles, whatever it is you want to do, uh, you kind of have the next few minutes uh, do that.
1: Thank you. That's that's very kind of you. First of all, thank you very much for having me on the show. I really appreciated you reaching out. Um, So as you know, I'm a junior doctor and um, I've just really enjoyed this job. So I I think in the next 10 years, I would just like to continue helping as many people as I can. Um, I have a great interest in cardiology, women's health, global health. Um, So I'd I'd really like to explore those different areas of medicine in the next 10 years. Um, And if you were interested in knowing a little bit about, um, some public health topics, I, I as, um, as mentioned, I do have a podcast channel, which is, uh, MedTalks. You can find us on Spotify, Apple music, Google, and, um, yeah, give us a listen. Um, and if you want us to cover any topics, uh, medical related topics, we, we would be happy, um, for you to just give us any of your feedback or comments
0: definitely. And, and we'll have a link uh, to maybe a Spotify or Apple podcast uh, in the show notes. So you guys can just click on there and, and check her out. Her, her podcast episodes are a lot shorter than mine, like 18, 20 minutes. So that, that's good. You know, sometimes I can go on and on and on. But <laughs> that's beside the point. Well, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Ravina, for being on the podcast. Uh, you guys can follow. Um, do, do you want to drop your social media handles or no?
1: Uh, yeah, why not? Um, on Instagram, you can find me on Ravina, R-A-V-I-N-A, B-H-A-N-O-T. And it's just the same for Twitter as well.
0: Got it. Got it. And Culture Class Podcast remains the same. You can follow Culture Class Podcast everywhere. Twitter is Culture Class Pod. Send us an email, cultureclasspodcast at gmail.com, if you want us to put you into Dr. Ravina. If you're in the UK or wherever you're in the world, please help people like Dr. Ravina to fly in the curve, stay home, don't be reckless. Um, and it'll all be okay soon. This is a good story for the grandkids. Like, this is our World Thank War II story. I'm going to exaggerate the fuck out of this, you know, tell the grandkids, oh, there was fire everywhere. Corona was like, I had to protect my, well, you know, it's all good. <laughs> all right, guys, uh, stay safe.